a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program. She is a professor at my old school, Laurentian University in Sudbury, and she's also the author of a piece called What Mining, Oil, and Gas Industries Can Learn from Sudbury, the city that went from major polluter to thriving environment. Dr. Nadia Mikachuk is with us from Laurentian University's Mararco, where she runs the show, Mararco Mining Innovation Rehabilitation and Applied Research Corporation. Dr. Mikachuk, Nadia, good morning and welcome. Good morning. It's great to be here. It's good to have you with us. We appreciate it very much. This is quite a story you tell, too. And I started moments ago, I reminded our listeners of St. Anne of the Pines, a particularly nice forested area of northern Ontario that became a center of nickel mining and went from pretty to pretty ravaged. And I mentioned the fact that at one point in the 70s, when I went to school there in the late 60s and stuck around to the early 70s in radio, and I can remember... A team from Houston, NASA, came up to Sudbury uh, with a group because they were under the impression that uh, uh, we resembled uh, the dark side of the moon, perhaps more closely than many other spots on planet Earth. Uh, and we've gone from that bizarre landscape, or lack thereof, Nadia, to 40 years later, it's not quite St. Anne of the Pines, but my gosh, it's incredibly transformed. Tell us a little bit more about the background and, and what nickel mining and that process did to a, an otherwise perfectly normal part of Canada. Yes, I think it'd be quite a surprise for people that, like yourself that maybe grew up in what we called the moonscape of Sudbury, which was a barren, devastated landscape, and think back to the 1880s before mining started in Sudbury, and it was a large red and white pine-dominated forest. Mm-hmm. It was lush and, and much like many other northern landscapes um, across Canada. And through extensive industrial expansion, that went without any type of regulation or environmental uh, remediation for almost 100 years, went from being a dense forest stand to being a treeless, vegetationless landscape of barren rock um, with significant acid pollution and metal deposition in the soils, in the lakes, and, and left a landscape that does in fact, or did in fact, resemble the moon up until the 1970s when when a concerted effort by industry, academia, the community, and government to work together to start to bring it back to perhaps what it once was. Was that the final push when NASA finally came up and the whole world uh, uh, came to understand what Sudbury actually looked like? I mean, folks at, at the time, I can recall vividly, Nadia, were, were unsure as to whether they should be flattered by all of this or put off by being called uh, the, the darkest place on planet Earth. Uh, they enjoyed their money, but they weren't quite sure what to make of the mission. But the upshot of that, was that sort of the turning point where people went, we really look that bad? to the rest of the world, we better do something about this. Well, it was, uh, it was certainly a bit broader than that. The uh, moniker of the moonscape wasn't helpful in mm-hmm, that yeah. you know, media, media picked it up and the astronauts came largely to look at the geology of the area and, and, and not the fact that it looked like the moon. But um, the media certainly picked up that name and it stuck mm-hmm. and it stuck with a community and it, it sort of, they began to embody it and, and recognize that you know, it wasn't it wasn't a selling feature. It wasn't a tourist highlight. And perhaps if they were going to improve the image of the region that um, the local government said, you know, is there anything we could do about it? 
But in the background, the, the scientists, both at the ministry and at the university, had been working, um, you know, for several years and decades, in fact, to collect the data to understand, you know, how bad were things? Why is it that the lakes were fishless? Why is it that the vegetation wasn't coming back? Um, and trying to understand how those industrial emissions and that sulfur dioxide in particular was damaging the landscape. And, and it, it culminated in the 1970s as we started to have that environmental movement. Mm-hmm. And it was much broader than Sudbury, of course, but it sort of all came to a head in Sudbury because everybody could point the finger at the Inco Superstack and say, well, you know, this is clearly a, a point source of pollution and we discovered acid rain and understood that that was having far-reaching effects in areas well beyond Sudbury. And it really needed that body of evidence and, and groups of individuals working together to start saying, okay, folks, we actually have uh, a much broader issue here. Industrial emissions from various point sources, not just Sudbury, were having a pronounced effect on, on vegetation and mm-hmm. lakes and, and fisheries and tourism all over northeastern uh, um, Northern America and, and as well as in Europe and elsewhere. So it was a, a turning point and Sudbury sort of was the focal point of a lot of those discussions. Yeah, and of course the environmental movement that we were in in the early 70s was called the ecology uh, in those days. And it also right. led to the acid rain treaty. Most listening to us right now, Nadia, will remember uh, George Bush and Brian Mulroney and uh, down in South America somewhere, I think was where they signed it. But it was the it was what they called the acid rain treaty and a lot of the Canadian example and the reason that Canadians were uh, encouraged and, and didn't find it very difficult to go along with the whole concept was because of Sudbury. We had a vivid example of that kind of ruination of the environment by polluters. So why not get on board and get a treaty done that knocks some of that down? No, that's absolutely right. And I, I think it's more poignant than ever to bring up that treaty in particular because what we're facing now with carbon dioxide and opposition to emissions reductions and things like carbon taxes is is so similar to the discussions that we were having through the 70s, 1980s, and, and finally signed the accord in the early 1990s. Right. Was the, was the fact that we were arguing over an industrial pollutant, in this case, sulfur dioxide, a gas that was being emitted by multiple industries and having, you know, in, incredible effects on in both Canada and the U.S. And it needed bilateral uh, agreements to to set the limits on what industry was allowed to emit. And it took uh, a lot of data, and it took a lot of negotiating and, and a lot of goodwill. Um, and Canada, uh, Ontario in particular, decided to lead the way and say, well, we're not, we're not getting to any type of agreement. Why don't we make sure we negotiate with clean hands. And they looked at Sudbury and said, well, we don't have an accord yet, but we're going to start implementing regulations. Right. We're going to start putting limits on pollution. And because everybody would say, well, you know, we're not agreeing to anything until you, you deal with the Sudbury problem. And so they did. They, in 1978, uh, they started the regreening program. Uh, in 19, earlier than that, 1972 and onwards, they started setting emissions limits on Inco and Falcon Bridge, which are now Valley and Glencore, and started reducing that sulfur dioxide being emitted. And they, they started documenting the impacts and the benefits of that emission 
limitation uh, immediately and then onwards through the 1980s. Yeah, let me quote from the article that you've written at The Conversation. Today, Sudbury has some of the cleanest air in all of Ontario. That's hard to believe given the city once emitted 2.5 million tons of sulfur dioxide per year. In the 1980s, the Sudbury became known as a unit of pollution against which other industrial cities were measured. Now, it's become known as a unit of restoration. Sudbury offers proof that it's possible to leave a healthier environment than the one we inherited and proof that we can change our climate for the better. And it's not some little thing. This is an absolutely massive project, Nadia. That's the one thing that I think listeners need to understand and why your article applies not only to the mining industry, but also, as you say in the title, to oil and gas as well. Any industry that's involved in extraction and creating pollution as a result of that effort can do the same thing as Sudbury, right? Absolutely. And I think uh, in a lot of the discussions that we're having these days, there's there's this belief that, you know, if you have to Im- implement or require massive industrial realignment, changes in processes, that it's going to put the industry out of business. And, and of course, you, understandably, that, that would upset a lot of people. And yet we have an example of, in Sudbury where we had major mining, major pollution. And at the time when we started implementing those regulations, it didn't put business out of business. We were able to improve processes increase nickel production in this case but decrease overall emissions and help improve uh, the local environment of course it didn't happen overnight i was just going to say the mining company i I was curious now i'm sorry to interject but were the was there resistance i mean mining companies did the right thing and were good corporate citizens blah 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 but when it first came up and it represented a threat to their bottom line and dividends to their shareholders was there an initial read up forget about it we're just fine we're fine leave us alone no, of course, there was a lot of pushback in the 1970s when, when initially they were called control orders. They weren't even legally binding regulations. It was sort of government coming to the table for the first time and talking to industry and saying, listen, we, we need to reduce emissions. Where can we set the bar? How quickly can you get there? And it, it they needed to come to the table and understand both engineering and science of how do you change a process that is that the the company needs to have on you know twenty four seven how do you do that how do you change something when you need it to be operating and that meant that they had to look at incremental regulations and stepwise changes in their processing okay let's shut down the most polluting components of of the process let's implement scrubbers let's implement implement uh, ways to capture the gases and that took time and uh, you know over 20, 30, now 40 years, you've now seen that incredible stepwise reduction to over 95% mm-hmm. less gas being emitted than was being emitted in, you know, when we were a unit of pollution. Wow. So it, it, it's an example that, de- that demonstrates that you know, change is possible for one of the you know, incredibly large industry, but also shows that it, it takes time and a concerted effort through different cycles of, of, you know, political pendulum swings, through different local governments, through different owners of, of these companies, you have to have a dedicated target and, and a goal to reach that end and say, we are going to be a less polluting industry and, and company or companies and be able to achieve those goals that have wide reaching effects in terms of supporting the environment, supporting restoration. And, and in our case, really looking at this example in the in the context of climate change and becoming a more resilient 
um, community and society. Dr. Nadia Mikachuk from Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario is our guest. Dr. Mikachuk is a bio-mining, bio-remediation specialist. And if I talked about what you do, Nadia, we would have no time left for questions and answers. So let's just say you're a specialist. I want to, uh, you've also written this piece at uh, theconversation.com about mining and, and lessons can be learned from mining. And Nadia, I want to quote again from your article. The global demand for critical metals like nickel, cobalt, and copper is growing in support of the production of electric vehicles. In the next 25 years, the world will need as much copper as was mined in the last 500 years, according to Rio Tinto, one of the world's largest metal companies. That's an incredible demand. Uh, And we, of course, have huge copper operations like Highland Valley and Gibraltar here in BC. Uh, So let's talk about the the move away from fossil fuels in terms of climate change. One understands all of that, but it's not without consequences, Nadia. And if the demand for oil and petrol products is going to diminish over time, it's it's going to be met almost equally by that demand for other things that make batteries for electric vehicles. No, that's absolutely true. And I think uh, a lot of the discussion around renewable energy technologies sort of forgets that we have to mine those raw materials um, from various parts of the world to be able to create those technologies, whether it's solar panels, whether it's electric batteries, um, and and that demand is only going to increase if we're going to wean ourselves off fossil fuels and, and replace that energy infrastructure. And batteries is the, the largest demand that we're likely to see you bet. with vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, the article, friends, at theconversation.com is entitled What Mining, Oil, and Gas Industries Can Learn from Sudbury, the city that went from major polluter and not pretty to look at, trust me, to thriving environment. And Dr. Mekachuk, you are a specialist in, among other things, Bioremediation. What is that, particularly as it applies to Sudbury and lessons learned? So bioremediation is is a process by which we can use naturally occurring bacteria that are found in soils and rocks and and, and other um, ecosystems and use them to clean up polluted environments. So in, in my particular field, we use um, different groups of bacteria to clean up soils and mine waste that are um, causing long-term challenges to the surrounding environment, both terrestrial and, and aquatic. So these are um, systems where we take these bacteria, we use their their special and unique abilities to either um, remove metals from soil, maybe limit the mobility of those metals into the waters, mm-hmm. um, or in some cases, we can even use those bacteria to extract those metals the same way we do in a smelter, um, and we can recover those metals and, and use them for a variety of applications. One of the things uh, that happens with every mine uh, mining operation, Nadia, no matter what the uh, metal is being extracted, is something called tailings ponds, and these are huge liquid areas of of waste from the mining process. How does bioremediation take on a big, ugly old tailing pond full of really nasty stuff? Yeah, tailings are unfortunately one of the the largest and most voluminous challenges for the mining industry, and both in oil and gas as well. That that is the the solid liquid byproduct of processing uh, materials. And in fact, most people don't realize that 
um, you know, mining in practice is is producing a, a huge quantity of waste compared to what we're actually extracting. True. Um, we're really only after about 1% or less of the original material, and, and much of what's left over afterwards are deposited in these large tailings ponds. Those tailings ponds are reactive in that they have a lot of um, chemical constituents that continue to impact the surrounding environment. Yes. And because of their your size and the way we manage them, they, they do present a long-term risk to surrounding communities and the environment. So we need to work with industry now to find better ways of managing tailings and perhaps even in the, in the near future, move away from large tailings ponds altogether. And one of the ways that we can do that is by making that material usable for other purposes. And we can do that by processing or reprocessing or remediating those wastes and biomining and bioleaching is one of the tools that we have in the toolbox to do that. Okay. And and what we can do is is by reprocessing those materials using less um, energy intensive processes like bioleaching, we can extract some of the residual elements that are left there. And what's left behind are finely ground materials that could be used for other applications like aggregate or um, making bricks or or other applications in backfill even. Uh, that would re- re- basically prevent us from having to create these large containment areas right. that are, are long-term risk. Mm-hmm. And uh, have they all been? Are they all gone in the Sudbury area now? No. So, with all of the um, incredible work that we've done in restoration and recovery in in Sudbury's landscape. One of the ongoing challenges is the legacy, huge legacy of hundreds of millions of tons of tailings and mine waste. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that um, our, our mining companies are working very diligently on to move away from sort of the long-term uh, maintenance of these large ponds to find more stable methods of, of controlling these areas. In the future, the best way will be to not have tailings ponds at all. But right. what do you do with all the old sites? And so we're, we're looking at strategies of either covering those wastes so we don't have to have a lot of water sitting in those areas, which makes them very um, um, at risk of having things like dam failures and moving towards dry covers that can be vegetated and those lands can be used for other purposes. For example, like having a solar panel or a wind power installation. Oh, okay. in, the cases, in the cases where we have tailings that are still... Um, very reactive or still have some metals left in them, Mm -hmm. we want to look at opportunities of extracting the metals that are there. With the demand that we have for things like nickel and copper and cobalt, we actually do need to look at a lot of the tailings that are sitting on the surface all across Canada. We Mm -hmm. have over 20,000 abandoned mines. A lot of those contain tailings that still have some of these metals that we need. And we can use processes like bioleaching, to extract those metals that weren't effectively ah, okay. removed through smelting. So, and we to can, have a second go at it, so to speak. Right. Nadia, that's, is there absolutely. such a thing as a, a safer uh, uh, metal to extract? And in terms of the mining process, and I, I talked about a couple of the big uh, names in mining in BC, Highland Valley, Copper, uh, Gibraltar, etc. But the biggest mines, five at least of the top ten mines in the province of British Columbia, are coal mines down in Sparwood on the BC-Alberta border, that part of the of the province. Uh, if Does it matter what mineral is being extracted from the ground as to how dangerous the process, especially things like tailing ponds, are going to end up being? 
It certainly depends on on what the the host mineral and the host rock is made of. So what are you extracting and what do you leave behind and how reactive is it? And that varies. It's not sort of a particular metal can occur in lots of different types of minerals. So in in your case in BC, you know, a lot of the coal is being um, extracted. There are some um, low levels of metals that are, are contained and not extracted, and they end up in the in the tailings and waste rock piles um, all across BC. Right. So it's every every mining operation has materials that they're not extracting, and those end up in those waste piles. And so it's a matter of looking at these systems a bit differently to say, okay, well, what are all the challenges that we have? How can we use the science and engineering that's available to us to maybe re-engineer these systems and start doing things differently to move towards zero waste, uh, zero impact mining. It's not going to happen overnight. We're going to need several decades to change how we've done this, but certainly there are means of and and processes that are already available that we need to scale up and implement as sort of a a best practice uh, in mining. Indeed. I can do this uh, as a first-hand testimonial, friends, having been a university student in Sudbury at Laurentian in the 60s uh, when it was the moonscape, and it was really a very ugly part of Canada, and to watch it transform since then into a very actually visually quite pleasing and very normal Canadian kind of place has been rather remarkable. It was a wasteland. Dr. Nadia Mikachuk from Laurentian University, uh, the author of What Mining, Oil, and Gas industries can learn from Sudbury, the city that went from major polluter to thriving environment. Nadia, terrific article and a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for taking time to to join us this weekend. Thank you for having me. Homeowners who have resisted the urge to renovate during the first 18 months of the pandemic may find now is their chance as lumber prices that soared to, well, stratospheric heights in the spring have finally come back down to something resembling normal. Here to talk about lumber prices and the spectacular ride that they've been on for the last year or so is Liz Kovach. Ms. Kovach is the president of the Western Canada Retail Lumber Association who say on their website, we are the largest building supply association in Canada. Our members spend $10 billion annually on products and services. Liz Kovach, good morning from Winnipeg. How are you today? Good morning, Sterling. I'm doing great. How are you? I am well, thank you. It's very kind of you to make yourself available to us as you and your colleagues in the lumber business have watched this ride take place. Was it all, Liz, the whole soaring price and now the crash back to earth, simply a matter of supply and demand? Yes, there's uh, the whole lumber piece. Uh, we learned in this last year that just our supply chains in general are uh, are fairly fragile, and there's a lot of elements within it. But we we knew that at some point in time there was going to be a decline, and there were some experts that were predicting that in July, once we saw the restrictions from the pandemic start to lift and people starting to get back to travel, that we were going to see less of an emphasis on renovating homes right. and going out and living life. Well, and of course, it was the then the the demand came because once we went into lockdown, Liz, nobody was going anywhere, and all of those travel plans, of course, got shelved, and some of the travel budget got spent on maybe the deck out back instead of going to England this summer. We're going to add a few feet of uh, eating space on the back of the house. Yep. I remember my brother in Peterborough, Ontario. He he was basically deciding to do the same thing, and he, he called me up and said, "You know, I went to, I went to shop for some lumber for my deck." 
deck? I am not building a deck. It is just stupid. It's just crazy. And that's what a lot of people were saying. Liz, in Vancouver, it got to the point where house builders were saying that the price of an average new home had gone up 30000 bucks because of the increase in prices of lumber. Yes. It was, and there was, uh, we were, we had some presentations that we would deliver to even some of the home builders just to give them some background and education on the situation. And, you know, first, when we started to look at where things were last March, there was a very ominous mood because everyone felt that there was going to be huge shutdowns happening. I would be, I'd have members calling me saying, Liz, you know, we have to book our material purchases, particularly on the commodity side by the end of October, sort of mid-November time frame, which means the producers can then produce the material that's required sure. and that's what's needed. It gets delivered in the spring. Well, when you take a look at some of the economies, because we represent Western Canada, so mm-hmm. we do have various economies. And when you look at provinces like Alberta, who had four difficult years because the sector of oil, gas, and energy had changed, that there were some businesses who were already kind of in a fragile situation. And then to realize they have a million and a half dollars worth of product that is now getting delivered that they don't know they can sell because the world was shutting down at that point in time. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stress. Fortunately, that's not what happened, but the, the DIY market was the wild card. Uh, no one could have predicted that because True. usually that doesn't happen, but you've got folks who literally could do nothing. Uh, they needed to keep busy. You've mm-hmm. got retirees that would typically head down south mm-hmm. and they needed to also keep themselves very busy. So that was the wild card in this entire equation. So that's what happened then. They, they, uh, uh, orders had been placed in the fall, and the forest, uh, the forest companies went about uh, producing and fulfilling all of those orders, and they were delivered in the spring at the same time as the lockdown happened, and people couldn't do anything but stay home and, well, fix the place up. They got nothing better to do. And up through the roof went lumber prices because there was only so much supply based Based on the orders from a few months before, and that was it. So you, you then uh, you could sell pretty much uh, board feet by whatever you wanted to charge. Well, and, and a big part of it too is even the mills they needed to shut down. So they were there were forced closures due to the pandemic. So right. you had some were completely off for two to six weeks. That's a lot of lost time because mm-hmm. if you have two shifts working and you go to zero, uh, you can't keep up with that. Then the other piece to the equation was the transportation. So every lumber mill, every lumber yard, any retailer, any wholesaler has a limited amount of space. And sure. yes, some of them have a lot of space. But when you get to a point where your rail is not able to come and pick up the material, you can only produce so much material before you run out of space. And sure. we saw this even on the insulation side. This is happening in, in pretty much every product line. And, of course, so you're, you've got an economy that's trying to get moving or keep moving. You're having a tough time getting transportation to pick up the materials that need to get out east and south of the border because a lot of, it, a lot of the materials come from B.C. Uh, and that ended up adding an additional wrench into it. It slowed down the ability to produce product. And so people were really trying to get their materials out. And the further east you go, so one of the challenges we had – 
in terms of getting lumber transported to, let's say, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, for example, is in the trucking industry. If there is a lack of backhauls, it's difficult to get them to bring that one load. So that added additional pressure sure. as well. There was there's so many moving parts, pun intended, but um, that we didn't realize would be impacted in such a great way that would cause uh, such a pressure on supply and the ability to fulfill orders. And you forget about the part, and you know, it, it, because everything else is just flying along, you, you do tend to forget about the fact that some of the lumber producing facilities were forced, like every other business mm-hmm. in the country, to shut down. They couldn't produce. The workers were quarantined or locked down at home. And so that created a gap in even the uh, possibility of production. Once that is resumed, though, are the forest producers now, Liz, sort of cranking it out at, at, at warp speed? Well, they're, they were producing it at full capacity. Um, I don't think they can produce any more than they normally could in a day, simply because there's equipment that needs to be maintained. I mean, let's face it, there's huge saws that need sharpening. You, if, if you're not maintaining the equipment and not cleaning enough, you're running the risk of fires within the mill, and that happens. Mm. And depending where they're located, natural disasters certainly have an impact on that. And when we look at more recently, unfortunately, the wildfires uh, didn't uh, have not made the situation worse. But there was some concern because initially, uh, Canfor had to curtail; they had to pull some of their people out of the harvest area sure. because it was too dangerous for them to be there. So, and we don't know what the impact of the hurricanes <clears throat> that we're in that have just taken place are going to have. Obviously, there's been some destruction. Uh, we know that three resin plants have been impacted down in the Gulf Coast, so we're not sure what the impact on that is going to be, but resins are a huge factor in engineered wood products and in OSB, so it's something that we're certainly following really closely. So what about prices now? Are we back, Liz, to where we were before the pandemic began? Uh, we're pretty close. Okay. We're, still, uh, we're still a little bit higher, but we are certainly much closer to where we were. So we're in that 400, that 480 uh, per thousand board feet range uh, when I believe we were at 385 just before the pandemic hit. So uh, there was a slight difference, but we're looking at more normal. Even if you go to a retailer, if you wanted to go get a two by four, it'll be very similar to the pricing prior to the pandemic. And is it likely that those prices now are, are going to hold for a while? Uh, well i'm a little afraid to commit (laughs) uh to be honest with you i think folks are a little bit nervous to predict what might happen we do know that there is still a there's still a strong housing market in canada um you know you've got a lot of aging housing stock that's still in canada and when you look at the grant that the federal government announced this last year in terms of eco-retrofits, if people start to embark on some of those, we're going to start to see an increase in, in demand. And now that fall is coming around and people are not necessarily in holiday time anymore, we might see just a little bit more of an increase in demand of product to get mm-hmm. projects done before the snow flies, at least here. <laughs> um, and the, we still do have a housing market that, that houses still need to be built. We talk about, um, you know, millennials now purchasing their new home, first-time homes. So, there's, uh, there's still going to be some movement going on on the construction side, but I don't think we will see anything like we did last year. Well, that's a bit of a <laughs> I think a everyone relief. hopes that's the case. <laughs> we, we can handle that kind of prediction, Liz. Thanks very, yeah. <laughs> thanks very much for being with us this morning. It's great to have you on the show. Appreciate your energy and enthusiasm a great deal, and the background behind the lumber price ride is also quite interesting. Thanks very much.
Well, thank you so much for having me. I, I love talking about this and being able to help educate the public on some of the challenges the industry faces. So I appreciate this time as well. Our pleasure entirely. There's Liz Kobach, the president of the Western Retail Lumber Association. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest back to the program. He was with us a few months ago, and we're going to return to the subject that he joined us for in the first place. Marcus Kolga is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. He is also the director of disinfowatch.org. And if you go to that website, you see the, the most recent posts are Chinese state interference in Canada's 2021 election and Russian state media fueling Canadian anti-vaccination and anti-mask movements. We have a full plate, Marcus Kolga. Good morning and welcome back, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Marcus. Uh, This Disinfo Watch, tell us a little bit about its background and how it came to be, and then we'll dive into the stuff you've got on the site. Well, thank you for giving me that opportunity to talk about a little bit about the background of the of the project. Um, You know, I've been keeping an eye on foreign disinformation, mostly Russian disinformation, since around two thousand seven. This is the first moment in sort of modern post Cold War era where Russia really started using uh, disinformation, information warfare in order to advance its interests abroad. And they they targeted uh, the small Baltic country of Estonia with uh, historical disinformation, tried to to organize and and provoke racial rioting there using disinformation. Mm. From that point on, I've been keeping an eye on it. And and, uh, I've been warning our officials, all Western officials, in fact, about the threat of it. And we really saw, uh, you know, the culmination of of all of these efforts on, by the Russian government um, really, uh, you know, hit a, a new level in 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 2016 when Russian government targeted uh, the U.S. presidential election. Right. And from that point on, I think it's been very clear that this is a threat. And um, and so we uh, created this platform, disinfo uh, disinfowatch.org to monitor and track disinformation targeting Canada. And we've been operating for about a year and a half. And what we try to do is, is like I said, monitor and expose efforts by foreign governments to influence our uh, important national issues and uh, and when interference is taking place. Well, I appreciate that elevator sketch of, of the background behind DisinfoWatch. <laughs> it's very important, Marcus, because now you, uh, you've, you've used an example I was going to use with you anyway. You've mentioned, and I think many of us have an understanding, uh, the Russian interference in the United States presidential election of 2016. We know that it was pervasive. So let me ask you this question. Is the Chinese interference in the current Canadian election equal to or greater than the Russian interference in the American election four years ago? Well, I think it's too early to say. Um, We don't have the complete picture. Um, You know, I think that experts, uh, you know, like myself, other organizations, others are are monitoring uh, what that interference looks like. Uh, There's been specific, there are specific efforts targeting uh, members of parliament and candidates in specific ridings yes. that we're keeping an eye on. They, they may not amount to, um, you know, state-sponsored interference, but there are actors who are aligned with the Chinese government who are in, clearly involved uh, with this sort of interference and the promotion of disinformation about 
uh, specific candidates who have been in the past critical of the of the Chinese regime. Right. A number of these candidates are in the Vancouver area, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, we have we see Chinese state media promoting uh, various different narratives. Um, I'm not sure yet that it's it's going to it's at the same level as we saw in 2016. But the fact that it is happening um, is should be of concern. And, uh, and the fact that the, the federal government has not really put any measures in place other than, uh, you know, a few that uh, that are sort of holdovers from 2019 and don't seem to be effective in this in this case. Uh, the fact that we're not we're not doing enough to address it should be of concern to uh, to all Canadians. And and now we're also seeing, for example, um, now over the weekend, to absolutely no one's surprise, right across Canada, various newspapers endorsed various candidates in various political parties. That sort of comes with the territory, and we're quite used to it, Marcus. But yeah. for the past week or more, we've seen uh, newspapers in the Chinese language, known to be quite sympathetic to Beijing, at quite pointedly asking Chinese. Canadians to vote liberal and going even further to say if you vote conservative, it's counterproductive to the effort of of Canada China. Well, let me follow that one up by going back to somewhere you and I were a few months ago. 87% of Canadians, Marcus, consider the Canadian position vis-a-vis China to be weak. 87% of us. That would suggest a lot of people who even vote liberal know that our position in China is against China is weak. Yeah, no, I mean, this is I mean, the, the numbers uh, speak for themselves. Uh, this is this is a fact. Most Canadians do believe that um, Canada's position on China has been weak. The fact that we have two the two Michaels that uh, now remain over well over a thousand days in prison. Um, you know, Hussein Jalil, a, an Uyghur Canadian who was uh, arbitrarily detained back in 2006. He hasn't seen or spoken to his families in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these, these, these are failures. Um, and the fact that uh, the current government hasn't uh, uh, made any proposals and that the, the fact that China and foreign policy itself has been completely absent from the, the campaign uh, a trail and and any debate during that uh, during the campaign is 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 of concern and you know going back to you know your point about um, Chinese uh, Chinese language media in Canada endorsing the Liberal yes. Party um, you know that's that is it is curious um, uh, you know every newspaper I mean we have a we're, we live in a free country every newspaper editor every journalist I mean the, everyone is a, entitled to their opinion and, yeah, and the star says vote liberal the post says vote conservative no surprises there no no surprises there and no, these you know the chinese language media uh, is it's certainly uh, entitled to their opinion as well i mean the the fact is that that opinion certainly in the chinese community does uh, align with uh, with the chinese uh, government um you know as we mentioned earlier uh, global times which is a, a chinese state-owned tabloid which has, uh, you know, consistently attacked Canada and its position uh, on the Michaels, on the on the detention of uh, of the, the Huawei CEO Meng. Right, um, and it's it's constantly uh, it's constantly publishing uh, sort of uh, articles that are that are critical of Canada. Um, this last article that was uh, published uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, basically threatened Canadian voters with a counterstrike. Uh, literally, that's that was the term that was used. A counterstrike, if they were to, if Canadians elect a conservative government. Right, saw that. Yep. So, and that's that's intimidation. That is clear intimidation, and uh, and that sort of the that's that position does align with the 
the Chinese language uh, media that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, Marcus, I also wanted to bring up the matter of AUKUS, the new security arrangement between Australia, Great Britain, yep. and the United States. It's an idiot. Now, Trudeau's going to say, well, it's, yeah, it's all about submarines. We have, we have no in, uh, in, uh, need for such, so, so we, were, we, we weren't invited. It's, we're not interested. This is a mm-hmm. security arrangement between Australia, the UK, and the US, specifically designed, uh, and, and they say it right up front, to to counter China. And it is, yes, they are going to build some submarines for the Australians, which of course has France completely bent out of shape. But Canada was deliberately excluded from this new counter China security arrangement between some of our, well, allies and partners. They left us out. And I think deliberately, Marcus, what's your take on it? Well, sure. I mean, it seems like we were left out uh, quite deliberately. And, and that's, that is concerning. Uh, because these are our, some of our closest partners, certainly the UK and, and the United States. The fact that we weren't involved in the discussions is is concerning. Canadian uh, people didn't. Our people didn't even know it was coming. There was no. We didn't get tipped off to it. Well, and and you know, add to that the fact that the the prime minister clearly <laughs> didn't have the intelligence and or nor the understanding of what this arrangement was. I mean, he he seemed to think it was some sort of a uh, you know. A, a nuclear submarine sort of Tupperware party, where right. where there was a you know a sales scheme to to sell uh, nuclear submarines, which which was not the case at all. And and quite frankly, the fact that he he believed that and didn't know that it was a larger uh, security uh, alliance is 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 of equal concern. Um, so, you know, I, I think that with this, this new Canadian government, uh, and I don't hold out much hope if it's if, uh, if if Prime Minister Trudeau is once again the prime minister. Um, the Canadian government needs to start taking foreign policy, intelligence and security issues seriously. And mm. this includes China. This includes Russia. Um, this includes our own Arctic space. Um, you know, we're not taking that, the threats to our sovereignty in the Arctic seriously enough. And, and going back to the initial topic of the subject of, of our chat, um, foreign interference, mm-hmm. we've done absolutely nothing on this issue. And so, you know, my hope is that somebody is, you know, with the, with the new government will start taking this seriously. But um, if, it's a, if it's a liberal government, I'm, I'm not so sure that that's going to be the case. Sterling Fox with you, joined by uh, Marcus Kolga, joining us uh, from Toronto. Mr. Kolga is the founding director of disinfowatch.org. And Marcus, before the break, we talked a lot about the Chinese influence on the Canadian election. And with any luck at all, we'll have a moment or two to return to that story about the scientists in Winnipeg, which is a whole other thing. But I wanted to take a moment now and talk about the other uh, resistance and the other problems that we're dealing with in terms of massive disinformation campaigns. And that's this whole anti-vax, anti-mask movement. And you are connecting the Canadian movements to Russia. How? Well, look, it's not just the Canadian movement that's connected to uh, Russian disinformation influence operations. It's the worldwide anti-mask and anti-vaccination, anti-lockdown movement. Right. Um, Look, we were were warned already in in March 2020. So this is, you know, literally just weeks after uh, the, the pandemic started. We were warned by the uh, the European Union's external action service. So this is like the European Union's uh, foreign service. Okay. They warned specifically that uh, they had already det- detected that Russia was exploiting the pandemic and that it would use you know information warfare and other uh, tactics in order to intensify 
the effects of the of the virus on Western society. Um, so we we already knew this was coming. And um, and we you know, this is the sort of thing that the Kremlin does. I mean, what the Kremlin is very good at is identifying crises, identifying uh, divisive issues and and exploiting them in order to further polarize us. And this is exactly what they did early on. They detected the opportunity to do so with the pandemic. And so what they did with both state media, um, you know, trolls, as we've heard a lot of, certainly back in 2016 during the U.S. presidential election, right. um, they would use these tools to seed Western societies with disinformation about um, vaccinations, uh, about mask mandates, about lockdowns. And by seeding the, the, the Western world with that, conspiracy theorists and extremists on both left and the right would pick up those narratives, use them to legitimize their own and, and grow their own movements. And then what, how the Russian government plays into it is that they continue to amplify those narratives. So they continue putting, adding fuel to the fire. And we were warning about this, uh, you know, a year ago, mm-hmm. that this was happening specifically with, and it would be happening with vaccinations. And, and now we're, we're in this situation where we've seen these anti-vaccination, anti-mask movements really turn into anti-authority, um, uh, anti- just anti-government movements yes. in, in general. And they're extremely polarizing. And, and as we've warned with DisinfoWatch that, you know, we may have in Canada, there's, it's on the horizon at some point, we're going to find ourselves in, in a situation like the U.S. was on January 6th, where we had the Capitol riot. Mm that we were going to find the, ourselves in the same sort of position. And certainly there, there, there have been signs of that during uh, the campaign, you know, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau getting pelted with stones and such, and just the, the aggressive uh, nature of some of these protests. Um, this, this is all, you know, all of it can be traced back uh, to, to some degree to, to the Russian government. And yeah. right now you, we, can, we, we will see a continuation and intensification of this. And the Russian government was too more than happy to uh, to continue uh, promoting them and and, uh, and amplifying these, uh, these those uh, those conspiracy theory and anti vaccine narratives. It does seem that this small minority in Canada is quite determined to push us to some kind of American moment. It seems to be that they're actually that will somehow or another resolve something. Uh, it's not going to happen, but they seem quite determined to go there. I suppose the other part about the disinformation campaign, Marcus, that was a little unsettling was because the Trump administration had decided to politicize the virus uh, that made the disinformation campaign so so easily and so remarkable well embraced by such a significant number of people of course that's what it is well sure and you know i think in the u.s case you did have the the president of the united states um adding you know giving those movements and some of those uh, strange narratives the credibility yeah by repeating them uh almost on a daily basis and so you know when, when you when you take that when you take the you know russian uh, information warfare, and you combine all this together, you know, it's, it, it becomes an extremely, it creates a, an extremely toxic uh, information environment and, and certainly a political environment uh, that uh, I don't think we've, you know, we're just starting to see it here in Canada. Yeah. I, I, I really do fear it's only going to get worse. Well, I, 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 and we need to talk about that for a second, if you don't mind, here on a Sunday morning. How can Canadians smarten up and, and become a little more aware of the fact that we are the targets, the constant 
targets, targets rather, of really slick disinformation actors from all over the world. We're going to have to be a little more discerning in terms of uh, of our sifting through uh, the information we're exposed to. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, CSIS, uh, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, this is a, a, a nonpartisan committee that looks at our uh, the way that we collect intelligence and the threats that uh, that foreign actors pose, they've, they've been warning and they've been very vocal about their warnings about this threat to our democracy. It's not just elections that these governments and actors target. It is our entire democracy and society. They're looking to undermine that. Absolutely. And erode, erode trust in our government officials, uh, in our media and, and each other. Like sowing confusion is the is one of the primary motivations that they have. And, um, you know, this, the current government has really failed to even uh, begin acknowledging the right. threat. Uh, they've, they've, you know, they've thrown some money at some, some, uh, some research, but there's, there's not been any sort of coherent strategy uh, to address this. So it really does come down to Canadians themselves um, thinking and, and consuming their media with a, with a, like with a, with a, uh, with a critical eye. Yeah. And because so many of us are consuming, uh, you know, I think it's something like 73, 74% of us are using social media as our primary um, delivery platforms for, for the, the news that we consume. We need to be more critical. So, you know, if, you, if Canadians are seeing uh, headlines that are, um, you know, a, a little bit sensational perhaps on, on social media, they, they have to take a step back and think about the source, think about the, the claims that are being made in some of these headlines, and do a quick search to see, um, you know, who's, who's sharing this stuff and, and whether anyone's really, you know, if anyone's fact-checked them. Um, the other thing that we need to do, and this is probably the easiest thing to do, is if you see something, some information that's being shared from a platform like a Russian government media platform, RT.com, mm-hmm. um, Sputniknews.com, or on the Chinese side, if you're seeing something shared by Global Times or CGTN or CCTV, these are state media platforms. They are, they are controlled by those governments, and those governments, their, their primary interest is to advance the interests of those regimes, and that's often undermining our democracy. Absolutely, that's what yeah. That's what we want to do. Right. And so when you see your friends or relatives sharing anything from those platforms, you need to not share it, and you should be <clears throat> connecting with your friends excuse me, and family, and letting them know what they're sharing. All right. Marcus, um, I, I have so, to, I, Marcus, I'm sorry. I have to leave it there, and it's a very good note to leave it on. Just be a little, a whole lot more aware of the information you're absorbing and be a lot more ready to challenge it. Marcus Kolga, director of disinfowatch.org, a very interesting website, friends. I commend it to you. One word, disinfowatch.org. Marcus, great to have you back on the program again. Thanks so much for joining us. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. It is a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the program. After watching too many young people take up a life of crime and too many people get shot and killed here in B.C.'s Lower Mainland, our next guest gave up his life as a partisan political activist to become a community activist. After years of being involved in the federal Liberal Party, our guest is now focused on stopping gang activity through a group he helped found called Wake Up Surrey. A pleasure to welcome Suki Sandu to our program this morning. Suki, good morning and welcome. 
Good morning, uh, Sterling, and good morning to all of your listeners. I need to tell our listeners that uh, Suki and I had a, a chat the other night on the national program about this uh, same subject, and I do appreciate your coming back this morning, Suki, because on the national show, you have to be sort of national in scope, and here we are on our local show, and we get to talk about Surrey and the gang issues, and of course, we had that shooting at the Pan Pacific, or uh, the, 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 the Pacific Rim in the parkade a couple of days ago, another gangster, uh, 13th homicide of the year already for Vancouver. Yes, and I think uh, uh, yesterday again uh, at Burnaby 8 Brinks, there was another shooting. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I think uh, as anyone, any resident in the Lower Mainland, this is uh, very disturbing. It's, uh, it's very concerning also as a member of the South Asian community because uh, a large percentage of these youth who are being targeted and and part of victims of this gang violence are are from our community and we've got a we've got a wake up here is it now uh, they uh, is the uh, is the gang activity and there appears to be with these targeted hits uh suki there appears to be a gang war of some kind going on and of course when this happens you know some people will go well you know good actually on them because they'll kill each other off and that'll be the end of it the problem is they don't care where they are when they start shooting and innocent people are frequently collateral damage that's the that's the ugly side of gang wars and i'm i'm you're talking about the south asian community is this a south asian gang war thing or are there vietnamese gangs or chinese gangs or multicultural gangs tell us more about that well gang gang violence i wish it could be that simple that you know they would just kill each other off um if i and gang violence also isn't just um predominantly one community that's it yeah um, as you know the hell's angels and there's others that uh in 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 the lower mainland in our region there's uh, gang members of in the gang uh violence realm that are from very, di- very uh, various ethnic communities right but the reality is is over the last many years we've lost over 400 of our youth south asian youth that have been uh, a part of this victims of this gang violence and many families have been ruined many many youth who um, who got in, lured into this gang activity and I think uh, the way I try to analyze it is that the names on the caskets have changed but the pattern of gang behavior still remains mm. um, uh, many levels of government have had various symposiums or forums etc or Band-Aid solutions, yet uh, if we look at this year, this is one of the historically um, highest numbers of gang violence crime we've killings we've had, and some of them are very brazen. Yes. Um, you know, the one at the Cactus Club, mm-hmm. uh, the one at uh, the Pan Pacific. Um, and in the past in our community, there's been a lot of denial from parents. There's been denial from community leaders. There's been a lack of action uh, with our elected representatives. Mm -hmm. And this is why in June of 2018, a group of parents whose kids are, you know, um, are not involved in this. We're just parents that are um, really concerned. We were sick and tired of the community being blamed or, uh, you know, when you whenever there was a gang killing that uh, we would read on the comments and mainstream people would call us out. So we came together in June of 2018 when a 15 and 17-year-old 
you know, just young high school kids right. were, uh, dro- you know, killed, and then their bodies were found in Campbell Heights area of Surrey. Right. And that's when the community just said, you know, enough is enough. Uh, there's got to be greater accountability, uh, greater accountability in terms of parents. There's got to be greater accountability from our elected representatives. And we've got to have these, uh, we've got to initiate and have these tough conversations, um, uh, you know, collectively. And um, it wasn't easy for us. Those of us who are part of our working team, mm-hmm. immediately we found that uh, members of the uh, liberal establishment or, uh, you know, uh, were trying to, uh, sort of discredit our group or tried everything they could to pull our legs or or to ensure that our voices were being silenced. And we we realized very quickly, like some of the people in our team were new to politics. And I told them from day one, don't kid yourself, this is going to get political. Right. Though we are a nonpartisan group, mm-hmm. it, was, it, it got very dirty because um, the dirty politics that were played with us by people in our own South Asian community because they didn't want, they were only, politicians sometimes are only concerned about credit rather than getting to the root cause of the problem right. or facilitating um, uh, tough conversations. Like, let's ban assault weapons and that'll solve the gang problem. There, there we have. Now you see, I've done something. Look, and I'm, it's a tough thing, but it doesn't really have anything to do with gang violence. Gangsters don't use AR-15s. They use guns, pistols smuggled in from the United States. And we all know that. So that sort of a dance, this banning of assault weapons is, is cosmetic, purely cosmetic. You talked about young, those young fellows in, who were in Campbell Heights who were killed a couple of years ago, Suki. This is a this is a hallmark of gang activity. They like to recruit young offenders, people who can do some of their dirty work for them, who, if they're caught, are only going to get a slap on the wrist because of the age they are and the, shall we say, lax nature of the Canadian youth justice system. Yes, and, and, and I go back a little bit there, Sterling. Um, you talked about uh, the assault weapon ban. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm elected, if I'm a member of parliament, say in Surrey, and we've got two members of our community that are in Surrey Centre and uh, Surrey Newton, okay, we've had probably a large percentage of the shootings this past year or the last three years have been in this region or in the Fraser Valley. Mm-hmm. And we've got four MPs in these two areas, in Abbotsford and Surrey, and I compare the two. I've, we've got Ed Fast and Brad Visson in Abbotsford, Matsqui. Then on the other side, we have Randeep Sarai in Surrey and Suk Dollywal in Surrey. Now, one, one side has been very helpful, has been looking to, um, to get to the root of the problem, whether it's needing more counselors in our school district system, whether it's working with policing agencies, whether it's going on a ride with policing uh, you know, with police to find out what's going on on right. a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very genuine. Whereas the other, where we look at our own um, MPs in Surrey Centre and Surrey Newton, all they're concerned about, you'll see their faces at ribbon cuttings to announce gang funding. But when you look at their, their daily practices and their daily actions, it is so contrary to, to, to genuinely wanting to get to the root of the problem and to actually learn about the problem. You'll never see them have a town hall meeting. 
You'll never see them uh, go to uh, even this member of parliament in Surrey Newton. I asked him for a report card on how many of the secondary schools in your constituency do you actually visit? You've been an MP for four years. Where's your accountability? You've got to be a role model. He, he, without a hesitation, he says, could you send me a list of the, the secondary schools in my neighbor, in my constituency? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the appalling part is that Wake Up Surrey has about, been about advocacy, but it's also been about creating awareness in, in, within our South Asian community that don't just b- blindly follow any political party. In this country, you have a democratic right to raise issues, to ask tough questions, right. such as the assault ban, that 90% of the, 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 the weapons used in gang crime are illegal. Yes. And, 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 and what, what made me speak out during this election was that I was really appalled at the liberal tactics, which are very deplorable, I think is, is very offensive. Because let's talk, let's, if you want to talk about gang violence and gun crime, let's get to, let's talk real issues. All right. And, yeah. and what happened was, is that it was easy to demonize your opponents and talk about assault ban, yet your assault ban, I ask any member of the Liberal Party, look at your assault ban, you're, not, you're passing the buck. You're passing the buck to uh, uh, cities and provinces to legislate. Well, if I'm so concerned, as if I'm Justin Trudeau, if I'm so concerned about gang violence and gun crime, then rather than leveraging the ashes of our youth, why not say, you know what, I'm going after legal guns and the buck stops with me. Mm-hmm. Yet that's not happening with Bill Blair. It's not happening with our MPs in Surrey, and it's not surely not happening with Justin Trudeau. Uh, we are delighted to have Suki Sandu with us. He is the co-founder of Wake Up Surrey. Suki, uh, before you, uh, we went to the break, you talked a couple of times about uh, politicians, for example, not really being terribly willing to sit down and take the hard questions and have those tough conversations. They'd rather come up with something they can be seen to be doing uh, by way of responding to the crisis rather than diving into it. So let's do a bit of a dive this morning. You talk about root causes. What are they? Well, root cro- causes in terms of your uh, gang crime? Yes. Well, basically, uh, look, I, I, I'm very blunt in this way, and I'm being very straightforward. I'm a parent, too. I have four kids, I mean, four university age uh, children. Mm-hmm. No politician and no police officer. I always say to any member of our community, no politician or no police officer is going to raise your kids. You've got to take some ownership yourself. So it starts with parents. It's also policing. It's also uh, legislation. Um, in, can- in, in Canada, British Columbia has the highest charge standard in terms of, um, you know, charging someone with gang violence crimes. Mm-hmm. So the, to meet that threshold for police and Crown prosecutors, it's, it's a very high standard. It's also our civil forfeiture laws. But also we look at gang violence it's about uh who gets recruited into this at at an early age from grade four and our research has shown kids in surrey and avidsert are being recruited at a very early age even from grade five and four to six onwards Hmm. um so it's you know looking at those kids who are lacking self-esteem lacking uh you know they're vulnerable they may have some issues at home and they're looking for that sort of to try to fit in right um so we look at there's no it needs to be more investment in terms of uh 
at the school district system. You can't have school districts cannot have a one size fits all type of approach. Uh, you've got to look at your. This is what we try to tell our provincial government, and they've been listening to us. We've had a very good relationship with our uh, solicitor, Gen- uh, Mike Farnworth. Mm-hmm. He's been excellent, and they're, they're, they listen to our feedback. Uh, in contrary to our f- federal government, where even we w- we've gone to some schools in in Abbotsford where you've got a 42% population that is South Asian, yet you're lacking uh, counselors uh, to work with parents and to work with youth that are from our community. Right. So there's got to be a pipeline uh, within the educational system to 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 have more leadership uh, to develop more leadership from uh, racialized communities or those demographics that are growing in these cities. Otherwise, you're going to you're not going to be ready for the storm or the increase in population or demographics. And also, so, Suki, what about the what is about you were talking about uh, recruitment occurring in elementary school for Christ's sake? I think most of us are under the impression that it starts in high school. But if the recruitment begins in at a very young age, is the education industry also kind of charged with being responsible for intercepting some of those recruitment activities? Well, it's it's about also our our first of all, it's it's. It's training for, like in Surrey, we've got, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be very blunt with you. The leadership is very archaic. It's, 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 a, it's the same old, uh, there's, no, there's no diversity in the, in the school administration leadership within our district. And when I asked the uh, superintendent that question, what, is the, what are the demographics of your, of your, or diversity of your leadership team? Right. Um, his face went pale. Mm. Um, they don't have a real functional diversity, equity, inclusion strategy. Um, they don't. They don't have a, a focus group within their school district in Surrey where they bring in uh, a lot of the South Asian educators that are and listen to them and take in a lot of the, some of the the best educators from our South Asian community are working in schools that are predominantly mainstream, mm-hmm. maybe in South Surrey, et cetera. Bring them into the, some of the inner city schools. Use, utilize their, uh, their leadership, right? Listen to their, think outside the box. Right. That's what I'm trying to say, because the gang problem in the lower mainland is very contrary to g- gang violence throughout North America. It's not a social economic issue only or poverty these are, a lot of these kids are from middle class families, right? So there's a disconnect, and this is where we come in because we we say the tough language in our community. We take some ownership. There's a disconnect between the parents, the kids, and the system, and we've got to fix that. But the thing is, I go back to our politicians. But you never hear a word from our politicians when when we had it with the killing at at the. Um, at the uh, Pan Pacific, have you heard from our senior minister from British Columbia, Harjit Sajjan? No. Have you heard from Randeep Sarai? Have you heard from Sukh Dolil? No. Yet, when it's time to demonize your opponents, then you, you, you hear them having press conferences. Well, you've got to be bigger than that. Your approach to this issue has to be more genuine. It's got to be more substantive. And it's got to be, you know, and I think what's happening in our community People are starting to awaken. They're starting to see this now. They're starting to talk among themselves and ask for report cards from their members of parliament. They're starting to ask these questions. What are you actually doing? Instead of going to our weddings and, and uh, special events and tournaments, 
what are you actually doing in terms of public service? Right. A lot of the things that you've talked about, particularly with respect to uh, some uh, changes within the education system, that is a provincial issue. And you say you do have the ear of the provincial government. Are you seeing any movement, any willingness to maybe make a few changes at the at the high school and elementary level in terms of the suggestions you're making? Uh, your point is well taken, Sterling, that it is a provincial issue. But so much of this overlaps. And one thing we said from day one... There's a need for a new, the, the system is dysfunctional. The system is reactive. The system is about Band-Aid solutions right now at mm-hmm. election time. Yep. We need to have a new comprehensive strategy that brings everybody inside. And then there's accountability, right? And so, so whether uh, civil forfeiture is a provincial issue, education is a provincial issue, mental health may be a provincial issue, but yet they need to work together within the whole realm, and there's got to be greater accountability. Right. So what we're saying is you can't just announce funding. I mean, we've had circumstances in Surrey where organizations are getting provincial fun- prevention funding in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, yet they have no track record mm-hmm. of any competence in gang violence or working with at-risk youth. But then you see that happens as a result of the the politicians' willingness to throw money at things. Suki, you know, and you've been around the process long enough that, you know, if you got a problem, we'll write you a check and then we'll have a picture taken and I can be seen to be addressing the problem and you can go cash the check. It's a win-win, or at least that's the way they like to pitch it. Suki, I have to leave it there because I'm out of time and I'm grateful for yours. Please keep up the good work and thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much, and I, I thank you for allowing uh, myself to come forward and, and, and speak to people, because we've got a federal election coming up. Don't, whatever party you vote for, if it's about crime, please take the opportunity to actually research the issue and see which party is actually having, does have a, a substantive policy, and which party is actually just trying to leverage the ashes of our youth. All right, Suki, I'll, leave, I'll leave it there. I'm, I'm fresh out of time, and I appreciate the uh, the advice. <laughs> Tomorrow's election day. Darn timely of you. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.